Welcome to another episode of Unwinding. I'm your host, Alex Folsom. And on this episode, we have a great guest in Aisha Hardison, who is an associate professor with appointments in both the Department of English and Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Um, she's also a Zora Neale Hurston scholar, and we get into a lot about Zora Neale Hurston's work beyond Their Eyes Are Watching God. Uh, we also had a little technical glitch in this one, so as you'll hear, we had to start over after about 10 great minutes of conversation where we really got into some good stuff, but we were able to save it. We're professionals. It's one of the fun parts about record recording remotely. You just got to make things work with new technology. I had to wait to record this little pickup until my dog stopped drinking water right next to the microphone. That's a lot of fun. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Google Play if you'd like to download these or subscribe. You'll get them every time they come out. Don't forget to follow us on social media at KU College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook where our social media guru Aspen Grinder is always keeping you up to date on what's going on in the college. And enjoy the episode with Aisha Hardison. We have Aisha Hardison here today on Unwinding. She has appointments both in English and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies as an associate professor. Aisha, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we were just talking about, you know, we were maybe 10 minutes into a really great chat and we had a technical <laughs> glitch as we're doing this remote via Zoom. So we are starting over. Aisha, thank you for your patience. Uh, no problem. Hopefully I can recreate <laughs> the magic that <laughs> Well, so you, you, know, you gave a really great anecdote about how you got interested in becoming a professor and it was talking about um, your experience as an undergrad at Michigan. So can you kind of recap that for us? Yeah, as an undergraduate, I believe it was the summer of my junior year going into my senior year that I was questioning whether I wanted to go on to pursue a graduate degree in English. And I found a research opportunity at um, Princeton University to work with a professor in African-American literature. So that summer, um, she charged me with going to look at microfilm of historical newspapers to find images of Black female entertainers and um, to find images of Black female entertainers to help with her research project at the time, which was a book that she was writing. Um, so through that experience, I decided I loved research and I loved archival research in particular and surprisingly enough, really enjoyed working on microfilm. And I just think the experience of going to the library every day and 
kind of um, the uncertainty of what I might discover through looking on microfilm, turning the pages and looking at the pictures and all the kind of historical facts that I gained through that experience, maybe decided that I wanted to pursue a graduate degree in English. So um, for those who don't know, um, can you kind of talk about what it is to work with microfilm, like how that process works? Yes, well, at that time, microfilm was a new technology. So you actually had to learn how to use the machine. So, you know, the direction to put the reel and how to fit it into its little grooves and how to not go too fast and how to go backward and how to actually scan. So at that time, it was, it was, it was very technical and very much a skill. And so I learned to do that by looking at newspapers. Um, and I, it turned out that I really enjoyed it, kind of digging into the, the microfilm archive to look at the newspapers, which at that time, those newspapers were the society pages and, if you will, today, social media. So when people were arriving into the town and what hotels they were staying at and who they were hanging out with at various restaurants. So I found it very exciting to learn about um, that era, which were the 1940s for her research project. And do you find that, you know, now working with students that they're enjoying those experiences of going back and learning some of these older ways of, of uh, archiving things like microfilm and the older medias? I do think they enjoy it. I think initially they're very surprised at how long research can take and that sometimes research includes dead ends. So I think students are um, excited to undertake research, but they're always a little thrown off that sometimes what you think you will find you don't find. But sometimes you find the unexpected or what you, you aren't anticipating. And I think those moments um, reaffirm your kind of interest in research. And I have to say, um, Claudia Tate was a professor that I worked with. Um, the late Claudia Tate was a professor that I worked with. And I always really kind of appreciate the experience that she gave me to kind of go through that process. And I think even though sometimes it doesn't turn out as one hope or desire at times, I think students do really appreciate what they end up learning because I constantly have students saying, oh, I, you know, I was never taught this before. I didn't know this, or I had no idea. I knew a little bit, but not this full picture. And so I think it is really beneficial to have those research opportunities. Yeah, I think those are really fun, the ability to get your hands on some stuff that you never would have had the experience to do if you hadn't, you know, pursued something like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a humanities type degree like that, where you're really going back and trying to study the people, not necessarily, you know, anything different or anything other than, you know, like, what were people doing then and how were they keeping things? How were they, you know, the idea that microfilm, I, you know, I, as a student uh, in high school, went to the library here in Lawrence and was using microfilm and I was, I couldn't believe that that's how they kept these things for so long. But it's really cool. It is a really cool process. Yeah, it is. It is. And the effort that they're doing to preserve and document their efforts, right? So yeah. like one, the newspaper, which was a technology in and of itself, like the printing presses, et cetera, in a particular historical moment, but then the effort to collect, you know, like a newspaper, like this entire body of work um, to, to make sure that we're preserving the print that's ephemeral, right? That it disappears, that it's recycled, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know, because I never really thought about that, but every day when I, you know, I've never gotten the paper as an adult, but as a, a kid, you know, we'd get the paper and my parents, and then they would just put it in the recycling bin. And that, that was, you know, the record of the day and it's just gone. So it is good that they keep that. I never really thought about that. Yeah, we kind of take it for granted because um, everything lives forever on the internet, but paper, you know, yeah. doesn't, doesn't survive <laughs> forever unless you're preserving it. Yeah. Yeah.
That's really cool. So, you know, you kind of said that that's what the doing this project where you're looking at microfilm and doing some of that research is what made you decide that you wanted to go to grad school and ultimately um, you did. So what was it that landed you at KU? I was a professor at Ohio University and I was invited to apply to the links or invited to apply for the links and he was visiting professorship um, by the Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. And so um, I applied because I thought it was a great opportunity to um, expand the direction of my research, but re also reaffirm it in various ways. So my research at that time was looking at representation of Black women writers in the period that Claudia Tate introduced me to, the 1940s and the 1950s. And so being in a women, gender, and sexuality studies department gave me an opportunity um, to connect with sociologists and historians, et cetera. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to do the visiting professorship. Um, I did the visiting professorship <laughs> in 2014, and then I joined the faculty of KU permanently in 2015. So uh, what was it that made you want to apply for that visiting professorship? You know, I know KU invited you, but what was it that really interested you in actually pursuing that? Well, it was the interdisciplinary of KU um, and the ease in which that's done in terms of teaching classes, but the ability of the faculty to be able to connect. So faculty in different departments like American Studies and African and African American Studies and English as well as WGSS really made KU seem to be an exciting place to visit and then to join the faculty. Yeah, and I think um, that's really cool. And it's something that I experienced as an undergrad was the ability to kind of cross-disciplinary realize that everything is interconnected and it was that something you try to instill in your students oh yeah definitely so that I, when i teach text i give them a historical framing so that students really understand what writers are responding to in terms of their historical context of when the text is being produced but also what writers may be drawing on in terms of their own personal life experience that may be shaping the text and so are looking at literary representations, which are creative, which are drawing on the imagination. Um, I also kind of frame those texts in regard to what's happening in the moment, um, what might be shaping that cultural production. That's cool. So, you know, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast with you at this moment is because you just um, received a, a large grant from National Institute of the Humanities to um, do a, a um, seminar or what is the proper title for it? Is it a seminar or is it a... Um, it's an institute. Institute, that's what I knew. I was like, seminar is not the right word. I wanted to get that right. So an institute, um, and at it, you're going to be um, looking at the work of Zora Neale Hurston. And uh, what was it about her work specifically that so interested you? Well, Zora Neale Hurston does so much. So she's an aspiring writer of her Harlem Renaissance time period. Um, what's fascinating about her is that she's trained as an anthropologist, so she draws on her observations and a lot of her creative work, but she's not just writing a novel. Her most famous novel is Their Eyes Are Watching God, but she's also writing short stories, she's writing plays, she's staging musical concerts. Um, so she just does so much in her writing career that she's a great um, individual to study over the course of an institute. Um, so not just not put her in conversation with other writers, but really kind of explore the full trajectory, the full body of work that she produces. So what kind of stuff will you be doing at the Institute? Is it kind of like, um, how does something like that work? Um, do you, you know, I know you'll be inviting like other researchers and those things to, to hopefully to campus if we can be back in, 
in you know together but if not at all i'm assuming it'll be digital or something yes. like that yeah we will go online yeah so ex what exactly will you guys be doing at the institute well the institute will is designed to engage various kind of aspects of herson's work so the first week we'll look at her classic texts or her more familiar texts and um, put that put those works in conversation with new research and new um, digital methods. So we'll be looking at their eyes are watching God, for example, but inviting scholars who take up Hurston in relationship to their digital humanities projects. And the second week, we'll look at some of Hurston's understudy works, as well as some of her posthumously published work. Um, so we'll be looking at her stage plays, for example, as well as her new ethnography, Bear Coon. And so we'll be discussing what we're terming the other Hurston. So the understudy Hurston or the over overlooked Hurston. Um, the third week, we'll think about um, Hurston in the future. So the future of Hurston studies, but thinking about how Hurston's work may lay a roadmap for how we do African-American literary studies today. So we'll be putting Hurston in context with Afrofuturism, for example, or with graphic works or graphic novels. And so we'll be projecting her and hopefully inspiring future work on Hurston studies. So that's the kind of, um, content of the institute kind of looking at herson from all these perspectives but the other aspect of uh, a neh humanities institute is to introduce people to ku so participants will get a chance to or will be introduced to resources at the university so we'll show them some archives in the spencer research library and in particular the spencer research library has the papers of Robert Hemingway, who was a chancellor of KU, but also wrote a biography of Hurston. Um, we'll also give them an opportunity to maybe explore some things in the Spencer Art Museum um, or some of the holdings there. So we really want participants to come and think about Hurston more broadly in ways that may shape their research, but also shape their future teaching, as well as show them and introduce them to the various resources at um, the University of Kansas. Cool. I want to get back to a uh, term you used, Afrofuturism. What is that? That sounds really interesting. Yes. Well, Afrofuturism has, um, it's a new configuration drawing on kind of the study of science fiction, um, what is now termed speculative fiction, but the idea of Afrofuturism um, essentially kind of projecting African-Americans in the future, thinking about um, that in terms of technology, but also thinking that in terms of futurity. So there have been some writers, um, Octavia Butler, for example, comes to mind that have been identified as science fiction or speculative um, writers um, who have gotten a lot of critical acclaim. But Afrofuturism also includes as other aspects of African-American culture like music and film, et cetera, and a musician that's often cited in terms of Afrofuturism is someone like Janelle Monet, who's thinking about humanity and the body in different ways to kind of have that um, aspect of, of futurism or reflected around futurity. That's really cool. I had not heard that phrase before. So that's, I'm glad you were able to teach me something new today. I appreciate well, that. Well, <laughs> another, yeah, another good example is Black Panther, right? Oh, so yeah, yeah. Thinking about that and technology in terms of the continent of Africa. Um, him being a superhero that's, you know, very much drawing on a, on an older text. So it's not a new term per se, but the, it's continuing to evolve in the ways that um, it manifests in contemporary depictions or cultural productions. That's cool.
I really like that. Um, so why do you think that for Hurston, her work, you know, I know, I, I think most people read their eyes are watching God at some point um, in their studies. It's a, a great novel. I really enjoyed it when I was uh, an undergrad. We, I think we read it in um, American English and <clears throat> excuse me, she, um, you know, that perspective is one that I don't think up until that point I had really gotten as a student. You know, I, so why is it, do you think that, that people latched on that, no, that novel, but maybe not so much of her other work, or we don't learn about her other work in that way? Um, well, I think people latch on to that novel because first, it's a great novel and yeah, it has really so good. many layers to it. Um, I think the other reason why it becomes Hurston's most famous novel, because in the moment in which Hurston is writing is that it's very unique. Hurston was one of few writers of the Harlem Renaissance that was dealing with rural Southern folk. So I think that's why it has become her canonized novel. Um, but I think the other aspect as to why Their Eyes Are Watching God really resonates with people is that it's a love story and we don't have too many love stories featuring Black people. Um, and it's not only a romantic love story about a couple, but also um, a love story about Black communities. And I think Hurston is very much invested in documenting um, all of the various nuances of Black community in that text. And so I think that's why it also stands out in her um, body of work. You know, uh, I always said that the best way to judge books from college are which ones are the ones you don't sell back right away. And that's one that I still have on my shelf. You know, I, I and I go back to it occasionally. I really like it a lot. Um, right. I'm, I'm glad to hear that all books don't get sold back. <laughs> yeah, I do have, I still have a few that I really enjoyed, you know, like some of them you like, you kind of want to keep, but you're also like, I'd also like to eat this week. So maybe I'll sell this book and hopefully be able to buy some food. <laughs> <laughs> That's understandable. That's understandable. Um, but why that kind of pleases me is because it's the, the, um, the hope and maybe the anticipation that one day you will go back and read it. And I've definitely had that experience with books that I've read it at one point of my life and have come back and read it letter, later and appreciate it in a whole new way. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I actually have had that, that experience too. And I've also had the opposite experience where I read something when I was younger. I was like, this is the best book. And then I go back and read it later. And I'm like, why did I love this? This is terrible. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, it's so interesting that as, I, as you evolve as a, a person, things just don't hit you the same way or you grow and learn that the thing you thought was so deep was actually very shallow. I've had that experience as well. Very um, true, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, but I think that's one of the fun parts about literature that is sometimes overlooked is the way that it affects you as you grow. You know, something oh. that, I don't, I don't think we talk about that enough, um, you know, maybe as uh, people, because I was an English grad as well, I don't feel like we really looked at that as how do novels change throughout our own lifetimes? You know, something that may be really important to us at one point isn't later, but I feel like something like, their eyes are watching God. It's so well written and it's written in such a way that like it'll, you'll, as you go back, you might experience it differently, but I think you'll always find it to be a, a great work. Yeah. Personally. I, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And we can't underestimate what we bring to books ourselves as readers, you know, like, as you said, the point in our lives and um, our worldviews that we bring to a text when we engage them, but also the best writers reveal something new every time because their language is just so rich. And so things we may not have caught the first time, regardless of our worldview, it's just that they, there's a constant revelation to be had when we reread those texts. Yeah. So that's to my mom who was always making fun of me for keeping so many books around. <laughs> She's like, you already read it. Move on. But no, I want to reread it again. 
glad I could be of help. So what was it about um, the ability to have something like this institute? Like what, what made you conceive of something like this? What was really the driving force behind doing something like this? Uh, well, two things in particular. So one, I was teaching a class in WGSS um, titled Black Love. And so um, that's part of the inspiration for the Institute. But coming out of that class, a colleague in American Studies, Randall Jelks, and I collaborated to co-organize a conference to celebrate the 80th anniversary of Their Eyes Are Watching God. So the class led to the conference, which led to um, the Institute. The second thing that inspired the Institute is um, this is a collaboration with Mary Emma Graham um, under the auspices of the Project on the History of Black Writing. HBW has put on summer institutes at KU in the past, and so this was an opportunity to work with Mary Emma and HBW to bring another summer institute sponsored by the NEH2 campus and one on Hurston. So those two things, the conference that was in 2017 and then HBW's history of public programming um, for our higher education scholars. That's cool. And I, I mean, we're so lucky at KU to have Mary McGram. She is awesome. She's done so much great work. And she brings in people like yourself who do amazing things and, and helps you guys continue to push that stuff forward. And I really appreciate the work you guys do. I think it's awesome. Thank you very much. And I, I also uh, appreciate having Mary McGram as a colleague in the English department. So, you know, obviously this summer has been um, interesting in a lot of ways. It's been, you know, frustrating. It's been at times uplifting to see people coming together to fight injustice. But, you know, we've, we've got one on one hand, you have a pandemic going on that's forcing people, you know, out of their routines, making them stay home, forcing them out of work. And then um, on the other hand, we see these, this uprising that we had this summer um, where people are taking to the streets to, to really fight against what they feel is injustice. And, um, you know, especially around um, the idea of like the way black people are treated in America. So, you know, obviously Zora Neale Hurston was dealing with similar themes in her work. Um, what is it do you think you know, that you can apply from something like Their Eyes Were Watching God or just her work broadly to what we're going through now? Most obviously, Herson relates to our contemporary moment and the ways that she's uh, representing racial injustice um, in their eyes of watching God, for example, in the response to the hurricane relief. Um, but I think maybe some of the unappreciated ways that Herson may speak to our contemporary moment is that Herson was very much committed to one, um, challenging the idea of Black pathology but also um, resisting kind of rooting herself or aligning herself with, with racial trauma. And so that she very much embraced what we now think of as black joy, right? That she is, was very much about documenting African-American culture and all its dyna dynamism and all of its um, celebration and all of its love. And I think that's one way or another way in which we can think of her speaking to the contemporary moment that she very much um, recognized the injustice and impression and the struggle, but that she was also very committed to recognizing the power of African-American communities um, as a source for um, survival and joy. Um. There's always kind of with the, I feel like the way that we as a, a culture often talk about the issues of race is that, 
you know, everyone is experiencing those things in the same way, you know, like, but uh, it, it seems to me as someone who is not black and who has not experienced those things that place does somewhat impact the way that you may experience racism. And I think that's really interesting was you were talking about, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, like the Harlem Renaissance era, but she was coming from like a Southern point of view. And um, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Cause you know, like a place like at Lawrence in the Midwest, you know, we had people who were protesting here, but I think the ways that you experience those racial tensions are somewhat different than they are in places that have experienced other histories. Yeah, I think that's true. We can think about um, the difference that region has in experiencing um, racial oppression in Hurston's era, as well as um, during the civil rights movement, so that there was a particular way that racism um, specifically within uh, the Jim Crow system, um, that it operates in the South, right? Um, so we didn't see those kind of separate um, black and white public spaces in the same way in the North as we did in the South. We also didn't see the same kinds of racial terror in the North as they manifested in the South. And I'm specifically thinking about lynchings, for example, or the response, the violent responses to protests in the South, for example. Um, but we do see, or we did see um, racial oppression also in the North. So that operated differently, but it manifests in how, um, where people were able to live in the North um, in cities and the suburbs and which affected where they were able to go to school and the um, unequal resources that were given to different schools, right? So that it's not that there isn't racial oppression or racial terror or, or discrimination or racism or broadly happening and um, not happening in some regions and happening in others, that they're happening in all the regions, um, maybe in different ways. But what I think is really powerful in thinking about the civil rights era is that there was a kind of national response to this. So we tend to forget about the many local campaigns and movements and protests that were happening across the country and kind of focus on the South in particular, and maybe you recognize some things in Northern cities, but that there were countless kind of um, organizations mobilizing around this. So I think even in the present moment, we can think about the differences regionally, which are important um, so the issues may manifest differently in different regions or the possibilities for resistance or strategies may be more effective in some areas than others. Um, but we can also kind of recognize a kind of national spirit and momentum around these things that definitely make them widespread across region, right? And I think that's what we're seeing in this moment that there were protests across the country um, and while they may be in response to different kind of local issues that this kind of national um, sense of urgency is being conveyed now as well as, as, it as it has been in various times in the past. Yeah, I think, you know, that's something that as a student and as I said earlier, you know, I grew up here in Lawrence and I think um, one of the disservices we do students in Lawrence is we only, maybe it has changed now, I should, I'm, you know, in my 30s now so i'm sure they're learning hopefully learning some different things at the grade school but so much of what we learned was like lawrence was this beacon of hope and there was it was where you went where there wasn't racism because we were anti-slavery and all of that but then as you get older you start to learn about how people were treated in lawrence that that you know there was the that black children couldn't go to the swimming pool and those kinds of things that I had no idea about until I was until very recently, which I think is a huge injustice, not just to the memory of those people, but also people 
who are growing up here who are getting a false history, a false belief in the things around them. And I think that's something that we're reckoning with nationally, but I think it's really interesting you say that, talk about the regional stuff, because I think sometimes it's so easy to boil it down between good and bad when there's so much gray in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's happened with this summer. And I know we're getting kind of off from Hurston here, but it's something that I think is kind of interesting. And when you were looking back at work like that, trying to remember that these things were part of a larger movement, but they were also very local. And yeah. that's important. Oh, yeah, definitely. And even for myself, um, I'm from the Detroit area in Michigan and that I'm still learning things about my hometown, for example. And I think um, it just requires a kind of return in various ways and we get a better understanding of why things are the way they are and even things that we took for granted that there typically is a kind of more, uh, there is a deeper, more complicated story to these things. Yeah, and it can be sometimes too hard to look at a place that you care about, that you've spent so much time in, and be like, well, what's wrong with it? You know, like, I only want to look at what's right with it. But unfortunately, in so many places, we are still trying to figure out how to get past things that happen that um, we think we've moved past, but we actually haven't actually addressed in ways that I think are sometimes more meaningful with a lot of, like, you're talking about the structural things like redlining and, and those kinds of things, the way banks were loaning money and that kind of stuff is just... Those things take generations to overcome. And I think that's something that, even when you're talking about the hurricane scene in um, Their Eyes Are Watching God, I mean, we saw that again in 2005 with Katrina, where it felt like the Black community was left to, to fend for themselves. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people died because of that. And it's something that hasn't really been addressed even now, I think, in terms of the way we treat different communities in this country. Yeah, I mean, um, it may be cliche now, but there are ways in which um, if we don't deal with the past, the past continues to come back and haunt us. And we can definitely see resonances. We can definitely see resonances of the past still in our in contemporary events, whether that's how we, how the, how, you know, federal responses to national disasters or how we manage kind of inequities we see in the legal system. and so obviously these are still questions um, that we can still pose, that we're still asking, that we're still trying to find answers to, but just as um, those things can continue, um, people persist in fighting um, structural inequality too. So there have always been movements in existence, um, always people trying to interrogate these things and um, challenge such inequities. And so I think it's important to remember that as well, too. Absolutely. Because I think sometimes, especially when you're seeing, you know, images on TV of people taking to the streets, you know, that is uplifting, but it's also frustrating that we're still dealing with things like that. And it's, it's kind of when you said the 80 year anniversary of their eyes are watching God, you kind of think like 80 years ago there, you can still draw a line to things that are happening now. And you just feel like we should be further along than we are. Yeah, definitely. I just want to, you know, the only reason why I said that was just to recognize that um, some people haven't forgotten, some people have always known, and so they've always been working towards this. And so when moments like this happen, is to recognize the people who have always been engaged in that struggle, right? And really persisting and persevering in, um, in that fight and in those movements. Yeah, because I do think at times it's easy to look back and think, well, no one was ever, but there were people regionally standing up and trying to fix things for their communities. Yeah. And I think um, that's something that's really cool. And, and, you know, with like someone like Hurston who did, you know, she wrote about what she knew. And I think that's why, I th- probably why it connects so much is when people write about what they know, you can just, it feels so authentic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and to bring attention and light to to local things and to recognize the work of our local heroes is 
um, always, always really important. Yeah. Well, we're going to do a hard transition here out of that. Yeah, I was trying to bring it back to Hurston, but I was thinking, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have it yet. <laughs> okay. and, uh, you know, I think that we had a good little conversation there about things. So it's, it's always, that's one thing I like about doing this is sometimes we'll just go down a road that we weren't expecting to go down and you, you hit some cool points in it. And I, I like that. That's what I like about podcasting in general. So are you, are you, you know, is what's happening currently nationally, regionally, as far as like fighting injustice and those kinds of things, um, is that happening, you know, or is that something you're bringing into your classroom? I guess is what I'm saying. Is that those discussions impacting anything in the classroom right now? Yeah, it's kind of hard for those conversations to not um, come up in the classroom currently, um, particularly because I'm teaching a graduate course on representations of the civil rights and black power movements now. Um, and so there are obvious connections that students are making between um, how um, the Selma marches, for example, or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X um, or the Black Panthers um, or Black Power are represented in the texts um, and largely contemporary texts, but some texts written in that period too, how those representations seem to um, prefigure or anticipate or have a lot of similarity between what we're seeing now in terms of protests or even the state's response to protests or the discussion around voting um, and access to voting, voting suppression. Um, that those kind of representations in the text that we're reading seem to speak to exactly what we see um, either being depicted on the news or what's being debated in the halls of Congress, et cetera. So um, I think that's heightened too by the fact that there's a presidential election. So there are definitely connections that we're making in the classroom between the literature and what's happening in current events. Um, speaking of the classroom, how has it been transitioning to teaching during the pandemic? You know, obviously we had the hard stop in the spring where everyone just went um, digital or remote. Um, how has it been? Are you back to teaching on campus or are you still remote teaching? I am teaching remotely um, and it has been a transition and an adjustment. Um, but it's also been an opportunity to uh, learn some technology, you know, some of which I was familiar <laughs> with. Um, but learn more of what's possible on Blackboard and Zoom. So it's, it's also been an opportunity to learn and to kind of take more advantage of um, the, the technology that's available in the classroom. Do you feel that your students are also kind of adjusting in their own way to that kind of stuff? I'm sure it's a lot different not having those face-to-face -face connections, especially at the grad level where you're doing a lot of work together. Um, but do you feel like your students are kind of transitioning at this point as well? I think they are. I think because uh, graduate seminars tend to be smaller classes that um, a Zoom classroom meeting um, can still be very intimate. It kind of maybe loses some of the dynamism of in-person teaching um, to fill the energy of the classroom, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, but I think because the seminar classes are smaller, I think they're still um, space to talk and still build rapport and community and given the subject matter of the class, um, the civil rights black power movement representation class, that that also kind of um, creates a, a, a dynamic and a rapport in the classroom too because the, the work seems so um, presentous or immediate. So that's been helpful in building community in the classroom as well. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously been a transition for everyone. And even like I was saying at the beginning of this, this podcast, learning the new technology of 
recording through Zoom and post-production because of that. And I've learned a lot because of that too. It's been, it's been an interesting time, even though it's for a not great reason. I think we found the light in it by, you know, staying together and finding these new technologies and ways to still connect, which is good. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think um, some of the things that we learn, ideally we will continue to utilize even after our pandemic moment that some of these things are really beneficial um, or can be really beneficial moving forward as we think um, education, but also how we make connections with people. Absolutely. Um, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I feel like we've had a great conversation. Um, I hope you have felt the same. Uh, do you... I have. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, I was ahead, just going to say I have. Thanks for inviting me and um, giving me opportunity to, to think about my research and teaching in the upcoming seminar in, in different ways. I, I appreciate the conversation. Oh, I, I did actually. I have one more question, actually, I, I meant to ask earlier. Um, so for people who obviously, you know, the Institute is more guarded, is more um, structured for, it'll be for uh, researchers and faculty at other institutions, that kind of stuff. But for people who are interested in, in Hurston's other work, like what are some places that they can find those things? Or um, do you have any like kind of insights into how people can get their hands on some of her less popular work? Or I shouldn't say less popular, but less um, known. Yeah, um, so the NEH Institute will be for 25 participants, um, primarily faculty, but there will be spaces available for graduate students. Oh, awesome. And it is open for graduate students as well. And then in terms of Hurston's work, um, one I would highlight, um, there have been some anthologies of, or excuse me, there is an anthology of Hurston's plays. Um, her novels, her lesser known novels like um, Moses, Man of the Mountain or um, Seraph on the Swanee, but they're in print, so they're available. Um, her ethnography, Barracoon, was just published in the last couple of years, so that's gotten a lot of great critical feedback. Um, there is a book about Hurston's journalism, which is another thing that we'll be touching on, so that there has been some work, it just hasn't been the bounty of work on these other texts as their eyes are watching God. Um, but I would also encourage people to explore the Eatonville Preservation Society. That's one of our collaborators for the Summer Institute. And that is um, located in Hurston's hometown. And every year they give an annual festival on Hurston. Um, so I think they have some resources on their website that may speak to um, that festival and maybe in the upcoming months that typically is held in January. Um, so I'm not sure there may be an online component this year that may be accessible to people as well. Um, cool. All right. Well, we had a great conversation today, Professor Hardison. I really appreciate you taking the time um, and I look forward to hearing more about your work. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. is a production by KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. 
It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research. Unwinding is a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. The conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Thank you.